0: And welcome to she said she said i'm laura cox kaplan christy hefner is the longest serving female ceo of any public company ever she also happens to be the daughter of the legendary hugh hefner and of course the company that she ran for all those many years was playboy enterprises she grew that company to a one billion dollar enterprise since that time she served as executive chairman of canyon ranch She continues to work as a corporate board member and she spends much of her time working with women run companies and with women entrepreneurs. That Christie is a trailblazer is undeniable. That she served at the helm of such an interesting and often controversial multimedia company started by her father is fascinating. We'll hear her perspective on creating corporate culture, on leadership, on how she navigated the interesting waters of journalism and business and how she thinks about impact and making a difference today. Christy, welcome to She Said She Said. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We're delighted to be here with you
1: and delighted to be here at the museum. Well, thank you for coming and meeting me here. I came into town on Monday because we had our Hugh and Hefner First Amendment Awards here at the museum which is of course a particularly appropriate place to have awards honoring people who are enhancing First Amendment rights.
0: First Amendment has been uh, something that you and your family have been passionate about for many years. Talk a little bit about where that passion comes from.
1: Well I had a long-standing interest in politics and public policy which was really I think shaped more by my mother because I grew up with my mother and a stepfather and my mother was very politically active and I got politically interested early on and actually thought I was not going to go into business, but into law and public policy. And then when I wound up at Playboy, the Playboy Foundation and the magazine had been long-standing allies of organizations like the ACLU or People for the American Way, and that gave me another platform from which to engage including starting these awards back in
0: 1979 yeah yeah it's an amazing history so let's talk a bit about your career actually started in journalism as I understand it Um, tell us how you got your start
1: well my interests when I was in college were journalism and and law and I didn't particularly want to go right on to law school after graduation so it seemed logical to see if I could work for a bit as a journalist and I was accepted into a program that's at Radcliffe on publishing a summer program and I was visiting my father in Los Angeles and mentioned that I was gonna go to that program and kind of out of the blue he said well do you think you would learn more if you went to work at Playboy magazine and worked with top editors and writers versus going to a more academic program And it seemed to me, in fact, I probably would learn more. So I moved back to Chicago that summer, worked at the magazine, and then moved back to Boston and freelanced mostly for a paper that no longer exists, sadly, called the Boston Phoenix, Mm -hmm. which was one of those alternative weeklies that had kind of twin pillars of liberal politics on the one hand and, and arts and culture on the other.
0: Interesting. And how did you decide to join your father at the company, ultimately? Because you, soon thereafter, went to work for Playboy Enterprises, right?
1: Yes, I worked a a year in Boston and was planning to apply to Yale, which had a combination law and public policy graduate program. And honestly, my dream when I was that age was to wind up someday either in the U.S. Senate or on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So I really wasn't thinking about business at all and I was visiting my father in LA and talking about what I wanted to do next and again he surprised me by saying well would you like to learn something about the company before you go to graduate school And I thought he was referring again to the magazine Mm -hmm. and I said well I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna stay in journalism so I don't think so And he said no no he wasn't thinking about the magazine he was really thinking more broadly about the company and would that be interesting to me and I really thought It was sort of like a junior year abroad. It would just be an interesting intellectual experience. I loved Chicago, so living there for what I envisioned to be a year or two was not onerous. I hadn't been out of school that long, so I didn't feel if I took another year or two off, that was a problem. And I moved back to Chicago really expecting only to stay for a short period of time. And I think in hindsight, even when my father made the offer, his vision was just... This would be a chance to spend time together because mm-hmm. my parents had divorced when I and my brother were very young. And I think the evolution of my interest in the company, demonstrating some aptitude for business, and then ultimately the company getting in trouble and my feeling that I could help all evolved over time without the pressure of feeling like when I first moved back to Chicago, I was in any way or perceived to be in any way an heir apparent.
0: So interesting. So you were at the company for, I believe, 13 years before the opportunity to actually succeed at the helm came along.
1: Actually, only seven. Only seven. I joined in 75 and I became president in 82.
0: And you were 29? Yes which is incredible to think about (laughs) was it incredible to you at the time right it seems incredible to look back and say wow someone who's so young running this enterprise and also at a time of um, I mean this was a precarious time there were some real challenges in the business what was that like and how did you think about that as a 29 year old woman
1: well at the time I felt I could do it and that the alternative which was to do a search and look for a successor to the president who had been in place and presided over a period of time in which while the company NetNet looked successful and profitable because of its gaming businesses overseas it was in many other businesses that were not successful and so when it sold its gaming businesses it was kinda like turning over the rock and being faced with all of the problems. And I felt that the length of time to do a search and then the length of time for a new person to build trust and learn about the company to be able to make a difference would cost the company nine to 12 months Mm -hmm. and that an alternative of working with the then chief financial officer in this construct I had of the office of the president would allow us to move forward very quickly now. In hindsight, I would say WTF. I mean, (laughs) what was I thinking? I didn't even have an MBA. I never worked in another company. Yes, I had been there seven years. Yes, I'd been on the board for three years. But it was certainly an example of candidly not knowing everything I didn't know. On the other hand, it was also an example of something that's been well documented, which is that often the best decisions get made by people who haven't been in a position for a very long time because they're more willing to challenge conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. There's actually a really wonderful book written by a woman, I can't remember her name right now, called Rookie Smarts. And it's all about that, that while intuitively we would think, well, the more tenured person would, by virtue of wisdom and experience, you know, be the more effective in any role. And in fact that is rarely the case. I think it's not dissimilar from why large successful companies rarely innovate in their space because the tendency is to not challenge the underlying assumptions about how things have been done Um, and so you tend to get innovation from startup young companies that are willing to disrupt and in my case, I think I knew just enough to prevail and I was wise enough to partner with the CFO and we moved forward from there.
0: Was it hard to be taken seriously? Did you find people not taking you seriously because you were a young woman? And and recognizing that and in this particular date and time there were not a lot of other female CEOs of any age much less 29 year olds who were running big companies. So how hard was that to be taken seriously?
1: It wasn't hard internally, uh, partly I think because I had been there for enough years that people had gotten to know me but candidly also because the company was in a financial crisis and in an odd way that's an asset when you're taking something over because to my point about change being hard if things aren't going well everyone knows they need to change and I think the fact that I was family gave people confidence that I was taking a long-term view that I was not the kind of CEO was going to come in and just slash and burn and you know collect a big payday and then go off and do that Mm -hmm. somewhere else. So internally, I actually got quite a bit of support. Um, Externally, it was more uh, interesting because, to your point, it was still—I mean, even today—but then it was very unusual to have a woman CEO, never mind of a public company. And so it would manifest itself in a variety of ways. For example. In many cases, where a professional services firm, whether it was an audit firm or an investment bank or a commercial bank or a law firm, was pitching our business, it was quite evident that they had scrambled to find some woman to bring with the team <laughs> to come into the room with me. And this poor woman, who probably no one in senior Pulled management even string. knew the name, even knew her name, never mind what she did at the <laughs> bank or the law firm or whatever, you know, was sort of pressed up against the the wall (laughs) so there were things like that that were kind of funny and i actually used my abilities to push for um the promotion of women at firms that we did business with which i think is actually one of the things along with promoting women within your own organization that women in senior leadership can do and and have a ripple effect
0: yeah I recently watched parts, I've not watched the whole thing, but I've watched parts of the documentary on Amazon Prime about your father, and one of the segments that I watched in particular was about your ascension to the helm. And one of the things that I noticed that I found interesting, and I'm not sure if this was just a product of the fashion of the time, but you, in every clip, in every interview, in every photograph, were dressed very, very conservatively. you, you know, nice dresses, but everything was very conservative. Was that intentional in an effort to make sure that you were taken seriously? Or was that just the fashion at the time? You didn't have a lot of role models with yeah. regard to other women in business I mean, I, think I, I, I positions.
1: think I did a pretty good job of resisting the worst of the um, dress for success movement of the 80s, <laughs> which was tie. <laughs> the, you know, floppy, you right. know, um, tied blouses and big-shouldered, you know, very masculine looking suits, but my natural style is more um, classic anyway, and I would have dressed that way probably anywhere I was working, and I actually always found the comparison somewhat amusing, Uh, and I once remember saying to an interviewer who was making some comment about it, particularly in comparison to the fact that my father was renowned for working in his pajamas and a robe all day long. That I I had actually come to work um, one day in my nightgown, but I found it uncomfortable by the end of the day, so I reverted back to business (laughs) dress. That's
0: a great story. Um, What advice would you give for other young women who may find themselves in a very senior position in terms of being taken seriously?
1: Well, I think authenticity is... Probably more important than almost any other quality in leadership, and what that means to me is that you have to find your own voice and your own style. Um, you know, some uh, my style is a actually relatively informal style. Ours was not a company where people addressed colleagues by last names. We had kind of an open door policy. It it had a certain kind of informality, in part because it was a creative company. So there were a lot of creative people who worked there. So I think. For Finding a a style of presentation, whether that's how you dress or how you speak, that you're comfortable with is important. And if you're uncomfortable with things like public speaking, or for that matter negotiating, then those are skills that are learnable and you you should learn them along the way.
0: Do you think it's difficult to ask for help when you're worried about being taken seriously? especially at a young age?
1: Um, Maybe, I mean, I think one of the advantages of experience and age is that, uh, at least speaking for myself, I think it's easier to find the right balance between confidence and humility. I think when you're younger, you feel you have to always present your confident self. And actually, I think it's very both empowering and uh, effective as a leadership tool to be able to say, I don't understand that, or I'm struggling with this. Now I think there's a balance. I remember early on when the company was in financial difficulty, I started a, a weekly kind of internal newsletter called "What's Going On," and my motives were very simple. I, pe- there was a rumor mill. You know, people were speculating are there going to be layoffs? What's going to happen? And <clears throat> I wanted people to feel that they would hear it from me and it became a kind of a scorecard for me in that if a week went by and I didn't really have very much to report then I had to ask myself were we moving quickly enough to make the changes we needed to but I learned that it was possible to err on the side of sharing too much also in that at least in my experience people want to know the truth but they don't want to necessarily know all the problems that you're dealing with they want to know you're dealing with the problems So finding the way to calibrate between knowing when to ask for help, ask opinions uh, versus when it's important to demonstrate that you have confidence in your judgment, I think is, is part of what leadership is about. I benefited greatly from the fact that from early on, I just, because I'm intellectually curious, read a lot and made an effort to meet a lot of different people. I went to different kinds of programs, different you know seminars, early on in what was then called new media. I was out talking to pioneers in that space like Jim Clark and Esther Dyson, and it led to how we were able to launch Playboy.com before any other national magazine launched their own site. And I think you can't know too many smart people. So to the point about asking for help, one of the things that's been a great advantage and asset for me in my whole career has been having this sort of broad and deep network of people from, you know, Warren Buffett to Kay Graham, who I could speak to about different issues. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes been noted that women tend to have fewer deeper friendships and men tend to have more and more superficial friendships which is like all gender generalizations just that Mm -hmm. but to the extent there's some truth in it i have said to women by all means hold on to those deep friendships i mean i personally think girlfriends are one of the great gifts in in life but but go broad as well and particularly maybe because i didn't have a mentor i've always been a little cautious about advising women to find a mentor not that there's anything wrong with it. If you do, and and I know huge, highly successful women who would attribute their success to having a mentor who pushed them, who gave them opportunities, who challenged them, but I've always felt it's a little bit like a professional version of looking for Prince Charming, and not everybody will find that person, right. versus building networks, which everyone can do, mm-hmm. and gives you the broader, advantage of many different people that you can reach out to depending on what you're looking for advice on. So because
0: Playboy Enterprises was a family business of sorts, even though it was a public company, how did you deal with differences of opinion with your dad? Did you ever have to sort of navigate those things and how would you
1: all work through that? I mean, I think in the main, we actually navigated that pretty well. I think partly it was because Even though when I became president, succeeding this person who'd been recruited from Knight Ritter, my father still maintained the CEO title, and it was only six years later after he'd had a stroke that I became CEO. Mm -hmm. In many ways, first of all, he had worked with someone in that role, but secondly, he never really wanted to be CEO, never mind CEO of a public company. He wanted to be chief creative officer of a creative company. And so from the beginning, we had... Kind of different areas of focus and different spheres of influence mm-hmm. and so i was focused on strategy and operations and building the team and investor relations and partnerships and he was focused on the brand and creativity and uh, that i think helped um i think it helped that he was in la and i was in chicago so we weren't kind of butting up against each other every day and i think father daughter relationships and business are a little easier than father son i think there's just a little less direct you know kind of alpha male competition Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say in the main it worked well we had one major business disagreement early on where I wanted we had sold the um, hotels and resorts and I wanted to close the clubs because I just felt that time of nightclubs that were driven by incredibly great live entertainment in small venues was kind of a thing of the past and his view was No one had made any effort to update the clubs in many years, and there were still a lot of people who were paying membership every year, so how did we know we couldn't make it work if we didn't try? And Mm -hmm. so we kind of struck an agreement to open a new club with whatever the best thinking was about what a contemporary club would be, and then, you know, give it a year and see what happened, and we did that in New York with some outside people, and... The hottest clubs in New York that I went to see before we reopened the Playboy Club, which we called the Playboy Empire Club, had already closed by the time we opened. And I just think it was a change in the times. Mm. And to my dad's credit, when that year expired and the club was not making money, you know, he agreed and we we sold the clubs. But in the main, he was incredibly supportive of the moves into you know digital and TV, the licensing, the globalization. So. I have to say, he was he was a good partner. I was the first woman in the Chicago chapter of Young Presidents Organization, YPO. I remember <clears throat> once being asked to speak to the sort of the next generation. So these were people in their 20s. They were mostly young men, although some young women. And somebody asked me, did I recommend that people go into their family businesses? Because a lot of YPO companies are family mm-hmm. businesses. And I remember my answer was, first of all, there's no one answer. It's very personal, so I can't tell you what to do. I said the one thing I would say is if it's going to bother you that someone sometime is going to think, never mind maybe say, that the only reason you're in that position is because your father founded the company then don't do it because someone sometime will say that so if that's going to bother you, go do something else. In my own case I felt that the overwhelming majority of people were willing to judge me based on what I did with the opportunity and the people who couldn't get over it, we're not people whose opinions mattered to me. But that's very personal. So I've heard you talk
0: a few times about the importance of culture and how important Mm -hmm. building a corporate culture is. Talk about the corporate culture that you built and that you help advise others as you're helping them to grow their businesses on.
1: Well, I definitely agree with the premise of the question. I'm a a big fan of the sort of famous Peter Drucker comment that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, I inherited, first of all, a very good culture, a culture that had a kind of front and center respect for individual that was put creativity, you know and and pride in the quality of what the company was doing uh front and center. But what I guess I tried to do was to build the culture around two um, kind of pillars. So one was uh diversity because. I felt and I think it's now, you know, indisputable that the more diverse the team of people is, the better the thinking, the more creative the thinking, the better the problem solving will be. So over 40% of my executives were women when I left. But that also meant, you know, people for whom English was not their first language, people who were openly gay. I had people who had been at the company and were still working very productively 50, 55 years. And I had young people that we were bringing into the company all the time. So I tried to think of diversity in in its broadest sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then secondly, something that I, I came to appreciate over time, which was what I called intellectual agility. So it's the ability to kind of challenge conventional wisdom, to be part of a culture that is constantly re-examining and reinventing itself so you know early on in our case we made the decision not to expand as a magazine publisher which is how all successful magazine companies had expanded in the past so if you're henry luce and you start time magazine and it works you then go on and you start fortune magazine and sports illustrated and money and then you buy other magazines and that writ large was sort of the history of growth and when we got the company on solid enough financial footing by the end of the 80s to think about growth it just seemed to us that the world was changing and there were all these new distribution platforms for content and that the greater opportunity was to in effect say we're not a railroad company we're a transportation company we're going to create a style of content across media platforms and around the world and then a, a brand driven business but that challenging of yourself as to you know what business are we in which sounds simple is really profound and the best way I can describe why I say that is the company that answers it right is Netflix and the company that answers it wrong is Blockbuster mm. So I wanted people in the company and a culture that nurtured and rewarded, uh, I won't say unconventional thinking necessarily, but I will say um, a a premium on innovation and creativity. And that was in the 90s and the early 2000s. Today, I think that that is so far below a aspirational goal that it's like now table stakes I mean I think companies today can never be certain where their competition is coming from or who's going to disrupt them and
0: that the biggest challenge for business today I
1: I do think so and I I think it continues to be difficult for the most successful companies to rise to that challenge because everything that got them there they're being asked to put aside and think differently about mm-hmm. plus there's this natural inclination whether you're Microsoft or Kodak to build a moat around your legacy business and of course the problem with that is if you don't disrupt yourself someone else will um, but it's hard change is hard and and as I was mentioning in the context of the financial crisis at Playboy being something of an advantage when I first took over the company that's because people knew they had to change if things are going well People are not eager to change, and uh, so I think those were the those were sort of the principles of the culture that I that I worked on creating, and I think it, it held us in really good stead. I mean, we we innovated far earlier than much bigger media and entertainment companies.
0: On that thread of change being hard, you left the company after twenty years. Was it hard to make that
1: decision? No, I should have left earlier. I ought to be honest. Nobody should stay as CEO of a public company that long. You were very kind to talk about my having served a record number of years, which our head of HR told me when I was leaving. And I had been thinking about leaving for some time. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in hindsight, my mistake was framing the question as, is this the perfect time to leave? Because I felt a strong sense of responsibility and loyalty to my colleagues to my father to our investors we had built a very successful institutional shareholder base by creating a dual class stock structure and I always felt at any one moment she I shouldn't leave now we just launched this new business or I just hired this key person or there's this problem that we're trying to solve mm-hmm. and after a few years of thinking that I would like to have a next chapter and That would mean leaving, but not finding the perfect time. I think, embarrassingly, it finally occurred to me that the real question should be, if I left now, would the company be all right? Uh And once I could phrase the question that way, that helped enormously. And then going back to my interest in public policy and politics, I had, throughout my career, worked with organizations and worked for candidates, and one of them was Barack Obama, starting with when he was running in the primary for his Senate seat a race that very few people expected him to win. So we had kind of a long history, and when he was thinking about running for the presidency, he called me, along with many, many other people, to ask me what I thought and to ask me if he ran, would I be with him, and I was from the beginning, and I sat with Michelle in the box when he spoke at the Democratic Convention in Denver, and I took him to L.A. for his first fundraiser, and when he got elected, I didn't have any interest in moving to Washington or working in the administration, but I did have an interest in changing how I spent my time in order to spend more time on public policy and political matters, Mm -hmm. which I did by aligning with the Center for American Progress, with whom I've worked now for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So leaving gave me the chance to have more time to do that, more time to do some things in the not-for-profit space and then still allowed me to stay in business and make a living by working with kind of a portfolio of companies, some for a short period of time, some for longer, and helping them grow as a kind of strategic advisor and sometimes a board member.
0: Now, many of these companies, as I understand it, are women-led, women-owned, entrepreneurial-type enterprises in some respects. Do you see any commonality in terms of the challenges that they face or the areas where you can provide them with assistance? Is there something that's sort of consistent across the board?
1: I'm not sure that the advice that I'm able to give, the assistance I'm able to give, whether it's around strategy or tactics or team building or culture, are necessarily different. I know I like working with women-led companies. I, I, it has another level of... Personal satisfaction for me, mm-hmm. but they're quite different. I mean, one is a company that's a family owned, multi billion dollar company in the agricultural space. And I met the woman who was just taking over from her father through an organization I work with called Women Corporate Directors, which helps to get more women on boards. And mm-hmm. I was moderating a panel on governance and family business, and she was on it, and that's how we met. And she has a particular set of dynamics, some of which are related to their industries, and some are related to a family business dynamic. And then, another company, Hatch Beauty, that I've been chairman of the board and senior strategic advisor to for about four years and worked with when I was doing my Canyon Ranch work, which is when I met them. That's a partnership between a man and a woman. He's the chief creative officer and she's the CEO. uh, And they create brands and products in the personal care space working with big retailers. So that's a different business dynamic. And then I have two, to your point, entrepreneurs, one of whom came through another not-for-profit i work with called springboard that's kind of an accelerator for women tech entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. and the other was a successful entrepreneur in a couple of women's organizations i helped start the committee of 200 and the chicago network and she sold her first company and is now trying to build a second company called skin in the game which is kind of a cross between um kickstarter and shark tank Mm -hmm. so it's it's fun for me to work work with women but i don't think i'd particularly give them Different advice than I would if I were working with a male CEO.
0: On this podcast, we talk a lot about perfectionism. We talk about you know failure, how you should really sort of flip the terms failure and perfection. Failure is really the positive. Perfection is really the negative. Yeah. Imposter syndrome. I mean, we cover all the biggies. Mm-hmm. Do you how do you see those? What tend to be inherent traits for women? How do you see those play out with the women that you advise in the corporate? corporate setting?
1: Well, I think it's getting better. I mean, I think that, first of all, there's, um, if not safety, there's certainly support in numbers, and while at the upper echelons of boards and C-suite of public companies, we're still mired at this sort of 20% level, which is very, frankly, disappointing to me. I mean, if you had asked me you 20, 30 years ago where I thought we'd be by now, I probably would have said, I don't know, 40, 45% and we're not. But we certainly have more of a critical mass. And I think there's a greater recognition of the fact that we need to change. And that has, in my view, different aspects to it. I think there are systemic problems. I mean, I think it's outrageous that we're the only developed economy without paid family leave and flex time and women pay a higher price for that. I think even though she got, in my view, some unfair criticism over it, I think Cheryl's book, Lean In, helped to highlight things that we do know from research, which is that, you know, on average, women do require a much higher percentage of a job to be work they've already done before they apply for it or or a promotion, whereas for men, I think the average is like 30%, and their theory is they'll learn the rest the same thing in terms of negotiating for salaries that there are things that women need to do to assert their things but i also think there's a growing awareness of the unconscious bias and the challenges that women face that are the culture and the power structure so behavior that you know is considered effective and aggressive leadership in men, you know, is characterized by words that aren't even used for men, you know, shrill, you know, bitchy. I mean, (laughs) you don't even apply those words to men. So we have to attack the problem on all sides. But I am, first of all, I'm an optimist anyway about things, but I am an optimist in that regard. I mean, last year for the first year, more than half the board seats were filled by women and people of color. Um, So I think that if we're if we're able to continue to make progress and the women who get ahead continue to feel that they have an obligation to bring other women with them then i think it's very possible that even in a decade or a decade and a half we will see some significantly different numbers and on the entrepreneurial side you know women have been for a very long time very successful and aggressive entrepreneurs and Having been involved with some organizations like C200 and YPO that have a lot of entrepreneurs in them, it's really exciting to see. I mean, I was looking at a stat the other day that there are more people employed by women-owned businesses than the Fortune 500. So it's a very dynamic part of the economy.
0: How do you evaluate where you spend your time today? You have the luxury of being able to pick and choose which things you want to work on. What's meaningful to you, and how do you evaluate that?
1: Uh, well, my first criteria is I don't want to do anything unless the people I'm working with are people I want to have dinner with. Life is too short, and I have the luxury of being at a point in time where I'm not interested in working with people I don't genuinely like spending time with. So that's the, that's the first criteria.
0: That's very liberating. I it is think. very liberating. <laughs>
1: um, I was uh, talking to some friends who started the e-newsletter, The Skim, and uh, they were asking me kind of how I manage certain very stressful situations and I said honestly I don't choose to put myself in stressful situations anymore. (laughs) Now that doesn't mean that when I was their age I wasn't in stressful situations but it is a luxury that I feel I have earned. Um, And then the situation itself whether it's a not-for-profit or a business um, has to interest me. I have to find it intellectually interesting and then I have to believe I can help and then I have to believe I will learn as well as um, help, because I'm not interested in recycling the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And if all those things are true, then I'm inclined to do it. We
0: ask each of our guests for their best piece of advice or life hack. That could be something that is a mantra. terrible at these kinds of questions. I never remember them. (laughs) Well, you've
1: already given us a lot of really great advice. (laughs) Then let's remember that one. I can't come up with anything more.
0: People say interesting things when asked this question. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be something that you that somebody, somebody told you at some point in your career or something that you consistently say to other people or something that you say to yourself when you wake up every morning and say we're gonna yeah
1: one insight that I I gained some years ago from a McKinsey study that I find very important to remember and do share is it was a study on high achieving women and the point of departure for the research was to look into what was then much talked about as work-life balance because again, obviously women bear more responsibility for both um, child care and, and elder care. But the results of the research showed that actually that had nothing to do with women's success. Rather it was finding the right balance between activities that energize you and activities that drain your energy. And I think any of us hopefully can think of many instances related to work where the time just flies because you're doing all this great creative work, you're with an interesting team, you're really making progress, and it's so satisfying. Similarly, and I have a fabulous family, we can probably all remember times with our family that are just like really tiresome. <laughs> so the point is that you need at all stages, and this is more true for women because they bear sort of disproportionate burdens of certain things. Carve out enough time for the things that are restorative for you, whatever that means, whether it's yoga or listening to music or cooking or travel or time with your girlfriends or reading or whatever. But you can't just be giving and be effective. You have to be getting back sources of energy too. Um, So that's something that I think is important. And then the, I guess, the more business thing. Which I alluded to is, I do think it is true that you do not get in life what you deserve, you get in life what you negotiate for. And learning how to negotiate, which is a, a learnable skill, uh, is worth it for everybody. And I think sometimes the tendency is to think that certain kinds of professions, let's say I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to be a salesperson, require negotiating ability, but others don't. But really, life requires negotiating ability so I I do encourage that
0: yeah that's great advice really great advice Christy this was amazing thank you so much for spending time with us this my morning.
1: pleasure thank
0: you to learn more about Christy you can go to our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com there you'll find show notes some photographs from today's visit at the museum as well as links to Christy's bio If you're enjoying this podcast, we hope you will leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. As always, thanks for listening.